0: This evening, I'd like to explore some of the reasons of why we practice. What brings us to practice? What brings you to practice? Why do you practice? What are the seeds that bring you to a spiritual practice? What are the seeds that brought you to this particular retreat? So beginning our evening with some questions. Some of which, or maybe all of which, have uh, visited your mind and heart. These questions that humans have felt and have asked forever regardless of culture, regardless of history. These murmurings of the heart, we could say. The deep questionings and yearnings that have been going on in us as long as there have been human beings. What's life about? What is death, its significance, its meaning? Can I be happy? Can I be at ease in this life? What do I need to really be truly happy and at ease in this life? Can I or how can I live gracefully and peacefully in this life with all of the challenges and all of the difficulties in this constantly changing world, in this changing country and with all of the challenges within me and around me right here and now in this very life. What is it that brings me to practice? And again, why am I in this retreat right now? Our practice isn't about getting caught up in and kind of mulling or stewing over these questions. But rather, these questions can be taken in as a motivating force and an inspiration towards connecting to and dropping more and more deeply into our practice. So this evening's talk is about an urgency to awaken. And the Pali term for this is Samvega. Samvega which is very often translated into English as spiritual urgency. But actually, it's a term that is somewhat difficult to render into English because it includes quite a number of different mind states. In the classical Buddhist texts, the force or the energy, we could say, of samvega is spoken about as one being moved or stirred to a sense of urgency to practice. And then the classical text goes on to say, Samvega is also about one being moved to a sense of urgency within practice itself by what should move one, followed by the systematic effort of one so moved. So, samvega is an urgency to practice, an urgency to awaken. And it's important to note at this point that spiritual urgency is an energy that's not at all fraught with any tense or frantic or obsessive sort of quality. But rather, it's a quality of mind a quality of heart that very often comes out of some degree of understanding the natural laws the way of things some degree of understanding how it is so we'll take a, a look at this for a moment for some of you samvega may have been sensed or maybe first felt as the endlessness of the round and round and round of daily life. Others of you may have felt a certain urgency through some degree of the perception of change, the perception of impermanence, anicca, in sensing and seeing and knowing mental and physical phenomena, continuously arising and disappearing in its gross, and maybe also in some of its subtler forms. And the attendant unsatisfactoriness of things because of this. Also, the death of someone close to us in our life can certainly move the heart towards the urgency to practice and the urgency to awaken. And for some of you, this sense of urgency may be experienced through feeling (coughs) the enormity or maybe the subtleties of the physical and mental hardships and challenges in life. The suffering in life that comes from this perspective. In general, in the big picture, And maybe more specifically through the various permutations of the hardships and challenges in your own life. And maybe even through a planetary picture, we could say, the overall planetary picture uh, specifically related to the happenings with the global warming crisis here on our planet. For some of us, the urgency to practice and the urgency to awaken comes from what might be a long, accustomed, or possibly a new sight in relationship to the mental pain that we feel in observing or directly experiencing bias or judgment or prejudice in relationship to race, culture, economic circumstances, gender, age, or sexual preference. Along with any of these experiences and the accompanying mental pain you may also have experienced a vague or maybe not so vague sense that it doesn't really have to be this way. It's not written in stone that it has to be this way. That there's another way and an urge to move towards this potential other way. When some vega first stirs us, it may be an emotional state that's somewhat difficult or maybe disturbing until it finds a clear and healthy direction to connect to one of the wonderful attributes of this stirring energy is that itself has the power to move us in a clear and healthy way towards finding a wholesome direction to connect to. An important point to recognize and to acknowledge is that continuing all along the way of our practice, all along the years of our practice, samvega is really an essential and motivating energy for successful practice. from my own experience I would describe samvega as an experience of being stirred and being inspired to a sense of spiritual urgency by the phenomena that goes on within my own body-mind process and by the phenomena that goes on in the world around me happenings that I may be directly involved with in some way, or happenings that I that I'm simply an observer of, such as the great misunderstandings and confusions that are currently occurring in this world, and the often jarring and violent reactions that are perpetuated because of this. Samvega is the movement of the heart. It's an inner response, both within our formal med- meditation practice as well as outside of formal practice times. And for me, it's the movement of my heart. It's a response, really, to let go deeper and deeper into my practice. It's this flavor, we could say, of some vega that stirs and moves me again and again and again towards letting go, towards relinquishing the painful contraction, however strong or however subtle, of clinging to anything. <clears throat> when some vega <coughs> is present it may sometimes be experienced as a kind of ardency, an inspired heart-mind. We could say like as a passion for spiritual practice. Something that I'm pretty sure, at least some of you, if not all of you, have felt at times. And maybe it's at least in part, what brought you here to this retreat as a Dhamma teacher your ardency and your sincerity in and with your practice moves and inspires me again and again and I think it's safe to say that this is true for all of the people that I've had the honor to teach with. This is one of the really wonderful aspects of all of us here right now. Dhamma students, yogis, and in this case, just one teacher. It's one of the wonderful aspects of living in a practice community such as this. Even if it's just for a short while. We really do move and inspire each other to deeper and deeper levels of practice. So even more specifically, from the perspective of the Dhamma, what is it that moves and inspires us towards practicing? And what, along the way of our practice, keeps urging us and moving us towards sustaining and deepening our practice. There's a beautiful account of how Prince Siddhartha Gautama came face to face with what are called the four heavenly messengers while being driven in his chariot through the royal city after all of his youthful years of isolation in a kind of make-believe world. And this is the account of his seeing old age, sickness, death, and a person dedicated to understanding the truth, a person dedicated to awakening. Maybe this story is more than just symbolic or metaphorical, considering the possibility that these four messengers, These four very common events of life. Old age, sickness, death. And though not so common in our time and culture, the many quite obvious truth seekers that were so much a part of the time and culture that Siddhartha grew up in. Considering the possibility that the great and ripe mind of young Siddhartha on those morning chariot rides saw and experienced these very common aspects of life much more deeply than had ever occurred for him before. And to such degree that he was urgently moved to leave the riches and the ease and the comfort of his existence to search for the true nature of life. He was profoundly touched during those few chariot rides by the overt physical and mental challenges and hardships, the suffering in life that he witnessed as he took in these four very common events of life. Siddhartha's story tells us that this young man was inspired and moved to be liberated. Inspired and urgently stirred towards awakening from the ache of delusion in relationship to the complacent lull and the very familiar habits of his life. And isn't it really the same Case for us. That most of the time, with the many times that we've seen these same messengers in our own life, both outwardly and inwardly, we've reacted. Reacted. Breaking that word down, reacted by ignoring them or by distracting ourselves and. Myriad ways by where and how we spend our time. So, for instance, all of the various ways we react by what we do to the various aspects of our aging bodies. Consider that. Or maybe we've reacted to these messengers by pretending or believing something else is happening. Until somehow at least one of these messengers touches us so deeply that we respond instead of react. And we respond in fact in a similar way as did Siddhartha by being moved and inspired to seek a path of truth and wisdom were somehow stirred at some point to walk a different path than by constantly feeling overrun with sadness or anguish or fear or being contracted with, within emotional states of attachment or anger or confusion in relationship to the natural occurrences of life. I mean truly, really, aren't our closest surroundings really full of stirring things? Stirring in the sense of samvega. And if we generally don't perceive them as such, isn't it because of our habits? The habits that render our vision dull or clouded our heart insensitive or reactive. And this can even happen in relationship to the Buddhist teachings. We certainly may have encountered times of very powerful intellectual or emotional or spiritual stimulation in relationship to the teachings and the practices. But at times, even this impetus can lose its freshness, can lose its impelling force, as maybe some of you have experienced. So, what's the remedy? The remedy for this is to constantly renew the freshness of the teachings and the practice. By just simply turning to the fullness of life within us and around us. Which, if we really look carefully, constantly illustrates what the Buddha called the Four Noble Truths in ever new variations. Illustrating the first truth of what suffering is, what it really is, which simply put, very simply put, is the lack of any thoroughly sustaining deep satisfaction in relationship to our expectations and the natural unfolding regarding the round and round and round of daily life. And if we continue to look carefully into the fullness of life within us and surrounding us. We'll begin to sense and see the cause, the origin of this unsatisfactoriness, this suffering, which is the second noble truth. And again, put very simply, it's essentially the clinging relationship of what can't be clung to, and the third noble truth the truth that in fact there is a potential end to this suffering there's a solution to this predicament the solution simply said being to not cling but rather to see things utterly clearly and simply be with them as they are and then to act or to respond to life from this place as it unfolds. And the fourth truth being the way of putting the solution into effect via the path. The path of practice offered by the Buddha. That each of you are Engaged in walking along, right now, at your own pace. Right here, in this very life, and in this very retreat. As some of you have experienced, and sometimes maybe quite unexpectedly, A degree of understanding of one or more of these truths can show up, for instance, with what might be a fresh seeing of our habitual reactions of maybe fear or anger or grief or maybe yearning and clinging. And the self-identification that's embedded in each of these habitual reactive patterns or insight wisdom may arise unexpectedly in relationship to a long accustomed or maybe a new sight or a direct experience of some manifestation of poverty or prejudice or observing directly and or maybe connecting with a weeping child or in relationship to the distress of someone you regularly have some degree of contact with or maybe in relationship to a connection with the physical or mental illness of a loved one or one's own illness or bodily discomfort or myriad other flavors of experience. With any of these experiences having the power to startle us we could say meaning to promote a reflective response and to stir up a sense of urgency in our resolve to sincerely and deeply practice this path that leads to the cessation of suffering. Through seeing and sensing our own experiences of body and mind directly, clearly, more clearly and more and more subtly, we might be stirred and moved by seeing and knowing the changing, impermanent, Ephemeral, selfless, and impersonal nature of things—something that is, of course, very available to each of us all the time. So, for instance, a moment of successive mo- or successive moments, many moments, uh, one moment <laughs> of directly and deeply experiencing and knowing the constantly changing nature of bodily sensations or mental states or a moment of knowing that it's all impersonal it's all anatta the Pali word for not sell mental and physical phenomena just absolutely naturally arising, changing, and passing according to myriad interconnected conditions, all the time. With these moments of sensing and seeing and knowing, we're often urgently stirred and inspired to go deeper in our already-chosen path, go deeper towards the end of suffering, or, depending on circumstances, to recommit to our practice. Samvega asks us, we could say, to step out of our everyday, ordinary, conditioned habits. To step out of our conditioned inertia. Each of us, all of us, have many stories, many experiences that come out of our pursuit of a spiritual life. And of course, many stories within our life as a whole stories that often exhibit this knowing and the manifestation of samvega. And it's often part of what I hear from students during practice meetings. There are a number of wonderful stories and dialogues in the suttas telling of the Buddha's disciples, excuse me, disciplined disciples, (laughs) being stirred up towards practicing with a more vital spiritual urgency and the stirring being done by the Buddha or the stirring being done by one of the Arhants one of his enlightened disciples or the stirring being done by one of the practicing Devas and in case you're not familiar uh, or don't know very much about Devas Devas are beings whose practice has brought them to be dwelling for lengths of time, sometimes very long lengths of time in beautiful states but who aren't yet awakened, aren't yet enlightened aren't yet completely free of suffering aren't yet completely free of dissatisfaction. There's a section of short suttas in the Samyutta Nikaya the Connected Discourses in the Woods, called the Connected Discourses in the Woods, where various woodland-dwelling devas approach certain monks, certain bhikkhus, uh, who are practicing in those woodland thickets. So I'd like to share a few of these encounters with you. On one occasion, a certain bhikkhu was dwelling among the Kosalans in a certain woodland thicket. And on this this particular occasion, the bhikkhu had gone to his spot in the forest for a day of practice. But all the while, kept on thinking thoughts of strong desire connected with the household life. Then the deva that inhabited this woodland thicket, having compassion for that bhikkhu and desiring his good, desiring to stir up a sense of urgency for him approached and addressed him in verse. And this is the Deva speaking. Desiring seclusion, you entered the woods, yet your mind gushes outwardly. Remove man the desire for people, then you'll be happy, devoid of lust. And in this case, meaning not not necessarily just sexual lust, but lust for things, lust for food, Lust for various objects, lust for all kinds of experiences. And then the Dave goes on. You must abandon discontent. Be mindful. Let us remind you of the way of the good. And Davis goes on. Hard to cross indeed is the dusty abyss. Don't let sensual dust drag you down. Just as a bird littered with soil, with a shake, flicks off the sticky dust. So a bhikkhu, a yogi, strenuous and mindful, with a shake, flicks off the sticky dust. Then that bhikkhu, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. The next dialogue takes place shortly after the Buddha's Parinibbana, after his death. His closest attendant and cousin, uh, Ananda, had been uh, very strongly encouraged to attain arhatship, to attain full enlightenment before the first Buddhist council convened, which was scheduled to begin during the next rains retreat. So Ananda had gone to the Kosala country and entered into a, a forest abode to meditate. But when the people in that area found out that he was there, they continually came to him lamenting over the death of the Buddha. And so Ananda, feeling uh, being a very responsible monk, uh, uh, felt that he had to constantly <coughs> instruct them in the laws of impermanence. The forest-dwelling deva uh, there in that forest, in that area, aware that the upcoming Buddhist uh, council could succeed only if Ananda attended it as uh, an arhan, a fully enlightened being, came to provoke and to inspire him to resume his meditation practice. And so this is the sutta. On one occasion, the venerable Ananda was dwelling among the Kosalans in a certain woodland thicket. Now on that occasion, the Venerable Ananda was excessively involved in instructing lay people. Then the Deva that inhabited that woodland thicket, having compassion for the Venerable Ananda and desiring his good, desiring to stir up a sense of urgency in him, approached him and addressed him in verse. And this is the Deva speaking. Having entered the thicket at the foot of a tree, having placed Nibbana in your heart, meditate, Gotama. Now, because Ananda was the Buddha's cousin, he had the same family name of Gotama, so that's why the Deva called him Gotama. Meditate, Gotama, and don't be negligent. What will all this hullabaloo do for you? Then the Venerable Ananda, stirred up by that Deva, acquired a sense of urgency. So I I picked this particular dialogue because though, of course, none of us are in the uh, same position as Ananda was, um, we're certainly quite often caught up, quite seduced by the seeming, Necessity for us to engage in the hullabaloo of various circumstances both externally and internally and neglect or maybe even lose our practice at times and instead go for these things so to me this this little verse beautifully and very clearly points out the importance of keeping your priorities straight and clear. Not, of course, to the neglect of what needs to be attended to, but to know when you're seduced unnecessarily and maybe even inappropriately into the hullabaloo. So another verse. On one occasion a certain bikuni <clears throat> was dwelling in Visali in a certain woodland thicket. Now on that occasion an all-night party was being held in Visali. Then that Bakuni, lamenting as she heard the clamor of instruments and gongs and music coming from Visali recited this verse. We dwell in the forest all alone, like a log rejected in the woods. On such a splendid night as this, who is there worse off than us? Than the Deva that inhabited that woodland thicket, having compassion for that bikuni, desiring her good, desiring to stir up a sense of urgency in her, approached her and addressed her in verse. This is the Deva. As you dwell in the forest all alone like a log rejected in the woods, many are those who yearn for your state. A forest dweller subsisting on alms food with few wishes, content. Many are those who envy you as hell beings envy those in heaven realms. Then the bhikkhuni, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. The next verse is regarding regarding a, (coughs) a bhikkhu, a monk, who continued thinking thoughts of ill will and harming, as well as potent thoughts of sensuality while he was practicing in the woods one day. The Deva, who also inhabited this same woodland, out of much compassion and wishing to stir up some Vega in him, spoke these verses to the bhikkhu. Because of attending carelessly, you, sir, are eaten by your thoughts. Having relinquished the careless way, meaning having relinquished, having let go of attending to things as permanent, as self, as desirable because they're pleasurable, having relinquished the careless way, you should reflect carefully, meaning attending to the true nature, the true characteristics with a very careful attention. In Pali, the word is yani-somani-sakara, attending as to things as impermanent, as not-self, and thus unsatisfactory in nature. And then the deva goes on to say, by basing your thoughts on the teacher, and in this case, the Buddha, on the Dhamma, and on the Sangha, and on your own virtues, you surely will attain to gladness and rapture and happiness as well. And then when you're suffused with gladness, you'll make an end to suffering. Then the bhikkhu, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. The last verse that I'd like to share with you is about a bhikkhu who, after returning from his alms round, and then eating his meal in the woodland thicket where he practiced every day, this monk would go down to a nearby pond and sniff a red lotus. When the deva who, who lived in that same thicket saw this, she thought, hmm, Having received a meditation subject from the Buddha and entered into the forest to meditate, this bhikkhu is instead meditating on the scent of flowers. If his craving for the scent increases, it will destroy his welfare. Let me draw near and reproach him, she thought. So, again, out of great compassion and wishing to stir up a sense of urgency for the monk to practice with more diligence the deva addressed the bhikkhu as follows this is the deva speaking when you sniff this lotus flower an item that has not been given this is one factor of theft you dear sir are a thief of scent and the bhikkhu responds I do not take I do not damage, I sniff the lotus from afar. So for what reason do you say that I'm a thief of scent? One who digs up the lotus stalks, one who damages the flowers, one who of such rough behavior, why is this one not spoken to? And the Deva responds, When a person is rough and fierce, badly soiled like a nursing cloth, I have nothing to say to that one. But it is to you that I ought to speak. For a person without blemish, always in quest of purity, even a mere hair's tip of evil appears as big as a cloud. And the bhikkhu responds, Surely, Spirit, you understand me, and you have compassion for me. Please, O Spirit, speak to me again, whenever you see such a deed." And then the deva responds, and uh, when I first read this I was really surprised by the deva's response. The deva responds, We don't live with your your support, nor are we your hired servant. You, bhikkhu, should know for yourself the way to a good destination. then that bhikkhu, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. So it seems that amongst those of us then and now those who over 2,500, 2,600 years ago were devoted to the teachings and the practices of the Buddha. And those of us right here and now, it seems that things haven't changed very much. Our human predicament crosses time and cultures. The teachings are really timeless. The solution that the Buddha offers to our karmic predicament is as relevant today as it was in India when these verses were originally spoken When Samvega is kept alive or renewed in various ways and to varying degrees we experience a release of energy virya in Pali and courage energy and courage that helps the development and the blossoming of the heart qualities of faith, Sada in Pali, and confidence, Pasada in, in Pali. Each of these capacities, we could say, energy, courage, faith, and confidence, are essential in helping us to break through what, for some of you, may be a sense of maybe some degree of timidity or hesitation or maybe more overtly some fear or possibly doubt or maybe some degree of complacency. The Buddha countless times and in countless ways exhorted his followers to arouse some vega and in speaking to a group of his disciples in one sutta he says this he says, rouse yourself, sit up what good is there in sleeping meaning the sleep of ignorance, the sleep of delusion for those afflicted by disease meaning the dis-ease of suffering the dis-ease of constant dissatisfaction for those afflicted by dis-ease struck by the arrow of craving what sleep is there? Rouse yourselves sit up resolutely train yourselves to attain peace and he goes on go beyond this clinging to the pleasures of the six sense doors to which humans and most devas are attached and which they seek Don't waste your opportunity. When the opportunity has passed, they sorrow when consigned to the realms of suffering, confusion, and anguish. And then he says, Negligence is a taint, and so is the greater negligence growing from it. By earnestness and understanding, withdraw the arrow. The traditional metaphor for practice is that it crosses over the stream to the further shore. The Buddhist attitude toward life is about keeping one foot, so to say, out of the mainstream and on the ground, the ground of spiritual urgency. And the Buddha was so confident in the solution that he found to the predicament of the unsatisfactory round, the cycle of birth and aging and death, which is actually occurring moment to moment to moment, breath by breath, in each of our lives, that not only does he ask us to not close our eyes to this reality, we're asked to also engage in a moment-to-moment observation of this cycle and to be completely honest with ourselves in the process. The Buddha's confidence was so clear and so strong that he called the reality of this unsatisfactory round the First Noble Truth which from this perspective we could say, is really a gift that confirms some of our most sensitive and our most direct experiences of things. And then from this gift of the first noble truth, the Buddha asks us to become even more sensitive, even more sensitive to the point where we see, where we know that the true cause of suffering is not out there not coming from some outside experience or some other outside being but that it's coming from in here in here in the craving and the clinging and the fear present in our own mind and then the Buddha in his great confidence coming directly from his own experience and often using himself as an example confirms that there's an end to suffering that there's a very available release from the cycle and he offers us a way to that release by the development of particular beautiful and clear qualities of mind beautiful and clear qualities of heart moral, ethical responsibility, sila concentration mindfulness clear compassion, energy courage, joy, happiness tranquility equanimity, loving kindness, compassion faith confidence All of these qualities and capacities really sprouting out of the original energy of spiritual urgency. That at one point led us to look for a solution to our predicament. So our predicament has a practical solution. A solution that's actually within the reach of every human being. a solution that many of you here have a growing faith in. Possibly in part through reading and studying the many stories, the many teachings within the enormous breadth of the Buddhist discourses. But really most importantly, what you've come to know through your own direct experience, through your own practice. So, the Buddhist attitude towards life both cultivates samvega and is also the solution or the path that develops out of a sense of spiritual urgency. As our faith in the solution to our predicament grows, as it develops, and as it deepens. For many of us, it, in a sense, is what gives us the energy to live. The last story I'd like to share with you this evening is maybe uh, a somewhat unlikely one from the contemporary writer Annie Dillard a story that I found uh, to be very inspiring and that invoked a spiritual urgency in me the first time that I read it many years ago now and that continues to move me every single time I read it. So these are a few excerpts from a chapter called Living Like Weasels from Annie Dillard's book Teaching a Stone to Talk. Last week I startled a weasel, who startled me. And we exchanged a long glance. Weasel, I'd never seen one wild before. He was ten inches long, thin as a curve, a muscled ribbon, brown as fruitwood, soft-furred, alert. His face was fierce, small, and pointed as a lizard's. He would have made a good arrowhead. There was just a dot of chin, maybe two brown hairs worth, and then the pure white fur that began and spread down his underside he had two black eyes i didn't see any more than you see a window the weasel was stunned into silence and he was emerging as he was emerging from beneath an enormous shaggy wild rose bush four feet away i was stunned into stillness twisted backward on the tree trunk our eyes locked and someone threw away the key Our look was as if two lovers or deadly enemies met unexpectedly on an overgrown path when each had been thinking of something else, a clearing blow to the gut. It was also a bright blow to the brain or a sudden beating of brains with all the charge and intimate grate of rubbed balloons. It emptied our lungs, it felled the forest, moved the fields, fields and drained the pond. The world dismantled and tumbled into that black hole of eyes. He disappeared. That was only last week, and I already don't remember what shattered the enchantment. I think I blinked. I think I retrieved my brain from the weasel's brain and tried to memorize what I was seeing. And the weasel felt the yank of separation. I waited motionless, my mind suddenly full of data and my spirit with pleading but he didn't return. I tell you, I've been in that weasel's brain for 60 seconds, and he was in mine. Brains are private places muttering through unique and secret tapes, but the weasel and I both plugged into another tape simultaneously for a sweet and shocking time. Can I help it if it was a blank? I would like to learn or remember how to live. I don't think I can learn from a wild animal how to live in particular, but I might learn something of the purity of living in the physical senses and the dignity of living without bias or motive. The weasel lives in necessity and we live in choice, hating necessity and dying at last ignobly in its talents. I would like to live as I should. And I suspect that for me the way is like the weasels, open to time and death painlessly, noticing everything, remembering nothing, choosing the given with a fierce and pointed will. I remember muteness as a prolonged and giddy fast where every moment is a feast of utterance received. Time and events are merely poured, unremarked and ingested directly like blood pulsed into my gut through a jugular vein. We can live any way we want. People take vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, even of silence, by choice. The thing is to stalk your calling in a certain skilled and supple way, to locate the most tender and live spot and plug into that pulse. This is yielding, not fighting. A weasel doesn't attack anything. A weasel lives as it's meant to, yielding at every moment to the perfect freedom of single necessity. I think it would be well and proper and obedient and pure to grab your necessity and not let it go, to dangle from it it limp wherever it takes you. Then even death, where you're going no matter how you live, cannot you part. Seize it and let it seize you up aloft even till your eyes burn out and drop. Let your musky flesh fall off in shreds and let your very bones unhinge and scatter over fields and woods, lightly, thoughtless, from any height at all, from as high as eagles. I would like to learn or remember how to live I would like to live as I should, and I suspect for me, the way is like the weasels, open to time and death painlessly, noticing everything, remembering nothing, choosing the given with a fierce and pointed will. In light of Samvega, it feels appropriate actually to share some of the Buddha's last words just before his death. Words offered to his monastic and his lay disciples both to instill a sense of Samvega in them and to exhort them to keep going along the path. And this particular quote that I'd like to share Uh, is from a somewhat expanded version of these words that comes from the Tibetan translation of the Parinibbana Sutta that I found to be really quite inspiring. So this is from the Buddha. O bhikkhus, bhikkhunis, do not grieve. Even if I were to live in the world for as long as a kalpa, our coming together would have to end. You should know that all things in the world are impermanent, are of a nature to decay. Coming together inevitably means parting. Do not be troubled, for this is the nature of life. Diligently practicing right effort, we must seek liberation immediately within the light of wisdom destroy the darkness of ignorance nothing is secure everything in this life is precarious always wholeheartedly seek the way of liberation all things in the world whether animate or inanimate are characterized by disappearance and instability stop now do not speak time is passing I'm about to cross over. This is my final teaching. And in closing this evening's talk... We come back around to our opening questions as Mary Oliver, in her own way, posed them in her poem called The Summer's Day. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean And let's sit quietly for just a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.